you, Beverly Lapp and Jose Rocha. Good morning. My name is Devon Kramer. I have the privilege of chairing our Martin Luther King Planning Committee. Welcome to the 2017 Convocation, MLK Convocation. This year we reflect on the theme, it is time. It is time for compassion. It is time for restoration. It is time to speak your truth and tell your story. It is time to tend to trauma and pain. It is time. Our convocation welcomes Sarah Thompson as our featured weekend speaker. And I invite you to take note of any nuggets of information, anything that stands out to you, because we, we do have a social media uh, campaign. Uh, feel free to take pictures throughout our, the rest of the day and share your thoughts with the hashtags MLKLives, hashtag Poor People's Campaign, and hashtag it is time. Now I welcome Ken Newbold to introduce Sarah. Good morning. We are gathered this morning around this year's theme of It's Time to celebrate the life and work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and to listen, learn, and share ways that we can be a more inclusive, diverse, and welcoming community. At a moment in our history where we are experiencing change in political administrations and continue to face the reality of violence and oppression in our world, we are reminded of the work of leaders such as Dr. King. This work is not done. It will take all of us to carry on the important pursuit of peace and equality in our communities. It is time for each of us to reflect on the steps of those of us who came before uh, to address racial, economic, and social inequalities and to take that work further and into the next step. This morning, it is an honor to welcome our featured speaker, Sarah Thompson, at this MLK convocation. Sarah currently serves as the executive director of, Christ, of the Christian Peacemaking Teams, an organization that seeks to rectify injustice in nonviolent ways. She is also a licensed pastor in the Indiana Michigan Conference of Mennonite Church USA. Her dedication to promoting social change has led her to work in over 60 countries and countless communities around the world. Sarah grew up not far away in Elkhart County, Indiana. She graduated uh, from Bethany Christian School and then studied at Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia, where she double majored in International Studies and Comparative Women's Studies and minored in Spanish. She graduated summa cum laude from, from Spelman and she was also very engaged on campus as a student where she was the student government, government president, the co-founder of Atlanta University Center Peace Coalition and interned very appropriately at the Martin Luther King Center for Nonviolent Social Change. She came back to Elkhart County in 2004 and began organizing to help save the Roosevelt Elementary School, which has been repurposed and currently today serves, uh, serves the community through meeting needs in area housing, meeting space, cultural celebration, and organizing for social change. Her work extends into the global community as well. Thompson was a member of Mennonite World Conference's youth engagement efforts and attended the, youth the Global Youth Summit in Zimbabwe in 2003 
and also helped plan the 2009 gathering, which brought together over 800 participants from 55 different countries. These experiences led Thompson to continue to pursue her interest in liberation theology, where she went on to study at the Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary in Elkhart, where she graduated in 2011. From these extensive experiences, it is easy to see why Sarah has been invited to serve and is the ideal candidate to be our keynote speaker this weekend. Her commitment to serving communities and building bridges across difference exemplified the teachings of Dr. King and also are very well aligned with our five core values of Goshen College. Please join me in welcoming Reverend Sarah Thompson to share her thoughts with us this morning. It is good to be here with you today at a school that I appreciate very much, in a community that I love very much. I remember when the rec center was built, and I was there all the time because of the sports that I played, and I felt super cool as a high schooler to be able to come up to GC and hang out with the athletes. And I remember like big sibs and little sibs weekend, like even if we didn't have an older sibling that went here, they would pair us with someone and we got to stay in their dorm room overnight and that was so awesome. Did y'all still do little sibs weekend? We gotta bring that back. <laughs> that was cool. But when I ended up breaking with my white Mennonite family's tradition of attending Goshen, and leaving the area for college, I promised them that I would stay connected, and I have. I see many uh, familiar faces out there, and those of you who I don't know, I'm really looking forward to connecting with you. For college, I, I chose to go to a place that centered the experiences of women of African descent. And I was in Spelman, in Atlanta, a historically black college for women. And since I looked like, pretty much, looked like everyone else there, and I had inherited a, a black Baptist tradition as well as a white Mennonite one, I thought I would fit right in. But actually, uh, some uh, Elkhart County Mennonite aspects of me made me kind of weird there. Um, <laughs> but from like trying to turn our cafeteria meals into potluck sometimes, to needing to learn how to dance. <laughs> uh, I awkwardly began to, to integrate my biracial uh, multicultural identity. But I used my upbringing from here, though, to my advantage. Leading anti-war marches grounded in our peace theology and eventually then running that successful campaign for student government based on equality and inclusion and participation my platform included fair wages for cafeteria staff because I learned here growing up that everyone, everyone's work matters. At Spelman, I had a chance, as was mentioned, to intern at the MLK Center for Nonviolent Social Change. And there I worked alongside the King family, Coretta Scott King, Martin's widow, and Bernice King, their youngest child. 
and some of King's contemporaries were still alive too. Now, if you really want to know what someone was like, ask their family and close friends. Being in Atlanta in that hub of civil rights, I learned and got to see that Reverend Dr. King was not an angel. He was a regular human being. And like me, he was raised on the stories of collective power, the prophets of ancient Israel and their guilds, the disciples of Jesus, the abolitionists. And he saw himself in that line, but he could have taken an easier route. He was a young, dynamic, educated man who could have a long career in the pulpit of a middle-class black church and just kept his head down. So when the organizers of the Montgomery bus boycott, most of them women, phoned him up on a landline <laughs> and asked him to be the face of their movement, he had a choice to make. Of course, history tells us that he accepted the challenge, but in 1955, history wasn't yet written. King had no reason to expect that his leadership would bring him and his family anything but trouble and discomfort. There was no expectation of a, of a Nobel Prize or a monument in Washington. There was no thought that, that this nation years later would set aside his birthday each year to reflect on civil rights. Truly at first, King was a reluctant leader. Maybe someone's calling you today. <laughs> Truly at first, King was a reluctant leader. But he had been taught, to whom much is given, much is required. And with that phone call, at the age of 26, he may have guessed that his chances for a relatively comfortable or long life were over. Yet, he gave himself to the process of collaborative work. He made a prayerful decision and would later say, I just want to do God's will. Now, that was 1955. Fast forward to the Poor People's Campaign 12 years later. In April of 1967, King connected the dots between racism in the U.S. and militarism abroad, which both fed economic exploitation that was devastating the planet and the people. And King helped black folks on the front lines of the army to see that their plight was connected to that of the Vietnamese. He urged that the poor people of the world must refuse to kill each other so that refuse to kill each other so that middle-class white families could live a lifestyle that required the plunder of war and exploitation to be sustained. A type of pacifism that is active and engaged to refuse to kill one another so that a system can live off your back. Although he was the son of a well-to-do pastor, he also called out the emergent black middle class to not be lulled by the escapist temptations of white supremacist society. Later that year, King articulated how the black freedom struggle was a part of the struggle for justice for all poor people. 
The crux of the Poor People's Campaign was that poor and working class white folks too have more in common with black folks and Mexican immigrants than they do with the elite white society. Poor whites had been convinced otherwise, you see. They were told that if they work hard enough, they could achieve the American dream. In the North and in the South of the US, white workers were given slightly more power in each setting than the people of color who were there. Some call that privilege. Some call that privilege. Today, I call that bribery. Poor and working class folks have historically been tricked into taking a few crumbs in order to draw the line that excludes their brothers and sisters of color. King said, you know, that line is drawn in the wrong place when he would go to Appalachia and speak with those who were covering, coming up from being covered in coal miners' dust. And he would, he would invite them to see their struggle for dignity deeply connected with the liberation of people of color. And so while our diverse ethnic, diverse ethnic experiences still matter, poor people of color and poor white people need each other. Today and together, we need to challenge those who are benefiting from the suffering of many. King's faith told him that if all goes well, in this Poor People's Campaign, if all goes well and the work for civil rights continues, we will be able to even save the elites from hurting themselves. And we'd be able to stop the process of doing further harm. Thanks for saying something. Thanks for breaking through this binary of like me up here talking and you just down there listening. Let me try to see if I can address what, what you brought up. I need to use some of my Christian peacemaker training to uh, process what just happened too. <laughs> Let's first uh, just acknowledge that, that we've had a, had a disruption and uh, two, two women have been uh, brave enough to, to claim this space as their own. What a gift, actually. Yeah. And I also want to acknowledge that there might be a, a wide range of, of feelings like being experienced in this room right now. Some of you might be feeling uncomfortable that, that I was just disrupted or confused or um, maybe there's some anger rising in you. Um, maybe you feel embarrassed for me. I don't know. Maybe you were dozing off and are now 
right back here with us. <laughs> uh, all these feelings are okay. Um, but it's just good to notice that uh, now we're in our discomfort zone a little bit. Um, something unexpected has happened and our, our, our senses are heightened. In fact, you might, you might feel like tingling in your neck or in your hands. Maybe you're starting to sweat a little bit. Uh, check if your jaw's clenched. <laughs> your mind running a mile a minute. Or do you suddenly have to pee? <laughs> uh, so wait, wait. I mean, the, those feelings are natural when, when things, get, things get disrupted. Um, actually, this is the kind of stuff that we work with in, in CPT. We actually incorporate things like this in our training because we uh, comfortable people sitting here need to have within our bodies that, ex that experience, like imagining, for example, what we feel right now is like on hyper alert, nervous, is what like any of the 65 million refugees on the move right now are feeling. Uncertain. Hypervigilant. So my invitation right now is to, is to, is to stay here, <laughs> actually, to stay with this and, and take a deep breath. And another breath. And another breath. Acknowledge. Hashtag, it's time to breathe. <laughs> um, discomfort happens as we learn. Um, and uh, although it changed the dynamic, just the overall, the disruption in this room is relatively, relatively small. Yet the feelings that might be coming up for some of us can take us to a time when maybe we weren't safe, although you, you're safe right now in this room. So if you're safe when something unexpected happens, by staying present and breathing, you can maybe even learn to, to welcome that feeling of discomfort. Maybe even with a little bit of wonder, the same way as you might uh, welcome someone rushing by you and handing you um, some pineapple upside-down cake. It's like, hmm, that's different. <laughs> well, okay. Sitting with discomfort is actually the most important racial justice lesson we can learn today. To get used to being able to breathe in the place of discomfort, to not needing to run to comfort or blame and shame and, and judgment, to not go numb but to notice And you're right, before I go further, let me acknowledge the traditional 
indigenous people of this land. Yes. What did you say? Many are dying right now. And, I, and I'm devastated by this. And the least I can do is to acknowledge every time I speak, every time I travel, who's hosting me and where we are. Let's see, how did I say it this morning? I want to acknowledge the past and present and future elders of the Potawatomi. I want to thank them for the ways of living and cultivating in this glacial plain. I mentioned this morning too that, you know, the architecture and, and the programming of, of this beloved Goshen College even buries the ancestry of this place. There are no Potawatomi language classes taught here, the most relevant language that is all anything but foreign. Earlier, actually, when I, when I shared my grief about this during breakfast and uh, saying that, you know, I was very sad that the Potawatomi were not here with us today, actually one person of mixed Potawatomi and Amish heritage came up to me afterwards after the breakfast, and she thanked me for acknowledging um, that indigenous part of her that's not often recognized. And she also came to say that she's still here and alive. She's a community member. Right? Right? So though there is not a, a critical mass, um, but there are active groups in, in Michigan and Missouri. Let's get to know our neighbors. The Native American issues, you're right, are not a thing of the past. We do have a special opportunity at this moment to participate with indigenous leaders around the world and right here. Like the call from Standing Rock in North Dakota, that was one example, is about much more than a pipeline. It's a call to change the ways that we settler folks relate to land, water, ownership, and indigenous people and self-determination. This is a call for decolonization. And decolonization means that we need to be unsettled. And that's uncomfortable, much more uncomfortable than we're feeling right now. Here in North America, this means that we have to uh, carefully examine our heritage, question the government policies that influenced our family's choices. White settlers, settlers of color, and recent immigrants from wherever you are in the world, we have to know whose land is hosting us. We have to bravely look into the past because the past is the future. In this political climate too, our sense of time is out of order. We don't know if we're moving backwards or forwards in time. And if the Reignited Poor People's Campaign this year does not have decolonization as its foundation, it won't succeed. If it doesn't connect with poor people's campaigns globally, from Standing Rock to Ecuador, you know, it won't succeed. The, the blood is on our hands. Thank you.
going to share, share with you what I do when, when I'm nervous. You can rub your kidneys. They're right here. <laughs> Go ahead. You can rub your ankles, too. They're right here. You can pat your arms. <laughs> this is a great way to get the blood circulating again. Because when something happens that, that you don't expect or that makes you scared, blood goes away from your brain. Where are my biology majors out there? All the folks. Is that right? That's right, so we need to bring, bring that circulation back up and let that adrenaline flow through. Yes. Yeah. Now I do that every morning, you know. Um, and I'm only 10 years out of college, so it's not because I'm old that I'm doing that. But, uh, I mean, speaking of elders, my grandmother is here. She's 100 years old next month. She exercises every morning. <laughs> <laughs> the connections with holistic practitioners and, and scholar activists, we have a lot to learn from, from people's movements around the world and how they've healed themselves and kept themselves alive over time. And, and in fact, speaking about how that Poor People's Campaign can be connected globally, Folks from around the world have, have many lessons to share with us in mobilizing with social movements under right-wing regimes. And they are prepared to support us in the US as we figure out what to do next. And they're watching closely because they have a lot at stake uh, with the impacts of foreign policy on their lives. And we can play a vital role to support them here within the belly of the beast. We owe it to ourselves, to our planet, to the next generation, to all the people caught in the crosshairs of Trump's attacks to not comply with any administration, college administration or national administration that emboldens racist individuals, validates rape culture in any way, promotes a dig, burn, and dump economic model, and seeks to impose regressive policies. We must not comply. Make no mistake, this is our time. We must disrupt. We must strategize. We must hold each other. We must organize and expand our ability to, frankly, be uncomfortable. Now more than ever. And about sexism, yeah. Keep making your demands here on campus with regards to Title IX. Sexual violence is a very important issue. A lot of church denominations and institutions are looking at that right now. And for those of you unfamiliar with this question of, of, of Title IX, it's the, the part of federal law that uh, examines incidences of sexism, especially in educational or athletic environments. And, and in any institution, if that work is taken seriously, staff will have time and money allocated 
to implement the recommendations of any investigation and address issues of dysfunction at the administrative or student levels. We need, we need to do this work. This is part of the civil rights uh, movement of right now. And supporting survivors and breaking the culture of silence is crucial. Uh, Christian peacemaker teams, we're going through an audit right now to see how our policies, procedures, and real life practices, how uh, actually that we may be doing violence to one another inside of the organization. So we're taking, we're taking a look at how inequality and oppression show up there. And I'm happy to share any, any of those non-confidential aspects of what we learn uh, from that audit um, to be helpful um, here and with any organization that you all represent. Because y'all, this internal work that we're doing is as important as the, as the external work. Two hands. We can only go as far externally in our work as we go internally. And of course, we can only go as far internally as we go externally. Any Poor People's Campaign or social movement that, that doesn't examine the way that patriarchy objectifies femmes and narrows and reduces uh, masculinity will not succeed. And I want to succeed. So keep up that good work. I know it can be hard, and that burnout can be real in college. But Dr. King didn't do it for his own generation, and neither are you. Keep it up. Yeah. Let me know how I can help. And you all are welcome to stay in my little vegan-friendly apartment in Chicago if you come. Um, my housemate uh, was chilling uh, with some friends recently at home, and, and they were talking about actually their, their journey to acquire uh, food stamps. And they were uh, talking about how, how terrible the service at the Department of, of, of Human Services was, um, actually. And the environment was so bad that it's, it's sometimes called the Department of Humiliating Services. Um, and what that, what that really points out is that there's a problem that our economic system is producing increasing numbers of poor people, which makes each DHS employee way overworked. And negative, humiliating experiences like this are not unique to Chicago. And it's for this reason that poor people in, in 1967 were mobilized to build a movement on the basis of their experiences and their hope for a world where their labor and their lives would be appreciated. This was the plan of the Poor People's Campaign, to recruit 3,000 of the poorest citizens from 10 different urban and rural areas to initiate and lead sustained, massive direct action in Washington. And those who could join the initial 3,000 this nonviolent army, this freedom church of the poor. They worked with King for, they were gonna work with King for three months to develop nonviolent direct action skills. Then they would move on to Washington, 
determined to stay there until the legislative and executive branches began taking serious action for adequate jobs and income. So if you were, let's say, from rural Mississippi and had never had medical attention and your children were undernourished and, and not healthy, in this campaign, you could take those little children to the Washington hospitals and stay with them and stay with them there in the hospital until the medical workers had to cope with their needs. And King said about this, in showing your children, you have shown this country a sight that will make it stop in its busy tracks and think hard about what is done. Stopping in our busy tracks, stopping our train of thought to be able to be present to what is truly in front of us. Their plan also was to interrupt. Yet, they never were able to, to finish that campaign and get everyone to Washington. Because while marching for sanitation justice in Memphis, the main organizer, Dr. King, was assassinated. So reigniting the Poor People's Campaign, which is just as necessary now as it was then, and getting the training you need is important too. They went through three months of training. We sent CPTers out into the field with one month of intensive training. But if there's some training you want, I think you mentioned providing anti-racism training. If there's some training you want, get it. Because anti-racism training will help each and every one of you, no matter what your field or your major is. And and if the college isn't offering it regularly, like, organize your own. There are many community members here today who would be happy to donate their time to facilitate a racial justice workshop or a study group for you. Actually, if you're a community member here and we'd be willing to support the students of Goshen College in finding um, resources that they need to understand the racialized history of this country and around the world, would you raise your hand? Students, look at all of these resources. Keep your hands up. Thank you. And the rest of you community members, come to those trainings, please. <laughs> so that we can have all the hands up next time, ready to support these students. Support these students. The work of undoing racism actually forms the basis of anti-poverty work and international solidarity. Anti-racism is, is believing that, that each person has inherent worth and resisting the erasure or stereotyping of, of people of color. Practice centering the stories of those who are not part of dominant US culture. This will help us reveal how the history of racism in this country is intertwined with the development of economic class. And we need to understand class at this moment. If nothing else, this past election has helped us have an awakening around class consciousness again. Mm -hmm. 
You know, like more looking at how these intertwine, on average, but not entirely, but on average here, black people are poorer than white people because they work for free for 250 years while other people made bank on them. And after that, then they had restricted access for another 100 years. And are now, black folks are now incarcerated at six times the rate as whites for similar crimes. And more native people are poorer than white folks on average because they were removed from the land that gave them wealth and then forcibly re-educated to forget their inherited wealth. Many Latinos are poor because of Spanish colonization and then violent US responses to the self-determination efforts in Central and South America. Racism is in our policies. It's in this polluted air that we breathe. We can't run away from it, but if we face the past, we will impact the future through our presence. And this means that we'll need to keep breathing, keep each other's courage up, and stay alive and, and stay in our discomfort and stay with our anger, not directed at how people choose to engage the power, but anger at, at unequal power itself. And then there's the despair that will come up as we try to do this work, the despair that, that we can't change at all. But you can use some of the, the things that we already uh, practice today, rubbing your kidneys, your ankles, patting down yourself. This will help you through. Yeah. And with these types of sensibilities, then uh, people of color and poor folks, middle class folks, upper middle class, white folks and people of color, can shake off our aspirations to be elite and to see that our true hope lies within our spirit-filled collaboration. This collaboration will only happen if we start to open up about our stories with one another, how scared we are about the future. I mean, most economic indicators show that things have actually gotten worse since 1967. Inequality is greater. We have begun to save less of our income, work longer hours and more jobs in order to make ends meet, take on debt, and buy cheaper stuff. All the while, productivity has skyrocketed because of technological interventions. The jobs that politicians are promising to bring back can't be brought back because they actually don't exist anymore. But while productivity has skyrocketed, roboticized, 
Wages, for example, have stayed the same or fallen. Though when I was reading the, the Goshen fact sheet about you all, it says that 94% of you all will have a job one year after college. And even though that, that may be true, you are graduating into an economic system that is different than that of your parents. You might have a job, but it might not be a good one. Um, low wage, part-time, temporary jobs are now making up more than half of the jobs created in the U.S. since like 2010. If you do not allow this reduction in income to reduce your imagination, this will mean that you potentially have more time to organize. <laughs> then those of you who will, get it, who will get a good job and who might not be poor at all, your job may be to, to manage the poor, the sick, or the homeless. And you need to question the assumptions there because there is a key difference between working with poor people and organizing alongside poor people. Let's transform social work into social justice. Let's campaign for a world in which where you live doesn't determine whether you live. Right. Let's work for a world where people can move between countries not scared and frightened and at the mercy of coyotes and at the mercy of people moving them around for money. Let's work for a world where people can move between countries because they want to, not because they're running from drone attacks, floods caused by climate change, poverty or violence. Let's campaign for that world. And international students, dare to tell your family story. We want to know you better and what things are, what things are like for you here. Many of you, I know, feel pressure just to, to blend in and just be another college kid while at the same time knowing that your family has sacrificed for you to be here and is counting on you to provide for them, don't try to go through this alone. Share your story, even if you think it might cause ripples. We're used to that by now. And when someone shares a story with you that, that disrupts how you see the world, or breaks with your family tradition, it is tempting to try to protect your comfort. It can feel threatening to have our assumptions challenged. And often we find ways to distance ourselves. Well, she's exaggerating. Or it's just Z's culture to talk like that. Or I know they're in pain, but if they weren't so angry and said it in a nice way, then I would listen. Or they're just jaded. Things are so much better than they used to be. We say these things to ourselves when we're hearing uncomfortable things to protect our comfort. Maybe some of you are doing that right now. 
It's okay. You're still in the room. We're still in this together. But notice. Notice. Don't go numb. Especially if you have societal privilege in any way. Notice when you're putting up a wall that can have social consequences for the other person. Because the wall that is constructed on the U.S.-Mexico border, the wall that runs um, in Palestine, the wall they're building on the southern border of Ukraine, those walls have nothing on the walls that we put up between each other and that we put up in our hearts. So when you're feeling overwhelmed, or when you feel frustrated that you can't tear down those concrete walls that exist in our world, just try relaxing your shoulders, breathing like we did, standing in a strong stance, staying present. It's how we tear down the walls and become doors for one another. You know, because you all have reminded me today that, that disruption and interruption are not, not always a bad thing. When I got interrupted a few minutes ago, like, no one died. <laughs> like, we maybe even learned something. Thank you, Naomi and Mimi, for facilitating that experience. You are stronger and more powerful than you imagine. And the rest of you, too. You are stronger and more powerful than you imagine. Access that power, not only after you graduate, but right now. Go to a new club. Get your money's worth out of Goshen by sitting with some new students in the cafeteria, by supporting the first responders, by taking a PJCS or a women's studies class that you might know nothing about, but just go to that professor ahead of time and let them know that you're coming with an open heart. And as much as I'd like to conclude this speech with the promise that it's going to be okay, I can't tell you what the future looks like on this fabulous and fragile planet. In fact, question anyone who does tell you that they know the answer to that. And if you're a person of faith, draw on it and look deeper into those stories. For example, if you're Christian, See yourself in the lineage of Jesus and that social movement. For Jesus was a poor, non-English speaking, brown-skinned, dark-haired, wandering teacher with a refugee history who was executed by the state. And if you are from another faith tradition, Wonderful, beautiful, 
Let's talk about your truth and see how we can work together. Now, if you were nervous coming into this convocation and are still feeling nervous or angry or confused about what happened earlier, I especially invite you to not run away and isolate yourself after this convocation. There is much life on the other side of discomfort. Bring your whole self, discomfort and all, to the rest of these days' activities. This day of study and celebration was created thinking of you. Come learn how to take care of yourself and set boundaries so that college life doesn't push you over the edge. Return here later for the town hall to share and listen. I want to hear more of your visions. Let's talk about what's really going on on campus across the different groups that we have of students here. Practice now to create the world that you want to see. And learn in these workshops how can you also be involved here in Elkhart County. Take another deep breath. In seminary, I learned that the, the word for breath is also the word for spirit and for voice. And therefore, then, that those who breathe together are co-conspirators in this work. And we're all at different places in our journey. And there's no end. The planet is small and round. We just keep at it. It's not about how hard we work, but how, how we work. And that means bringing in our grief, too. If you're at the point in the semester already, <laughs> where it's hard to get out of bed, and you're weeping at, at what is happening in our national and international life or in your personal life, your grief is sacred too, today. King spent a lot of time in bed, weeping, tired. But he got out of bed, and I need you to get out of bed too. Drink water to replace their salty tears. Then come join your peers in demonstrating our resistance, our power, and our love for each other. Together, we will face the dangers ahead and build the conditions for our liberation. It's time to fill the streets with our courage. It's time to fill these classrooms and soccer fields with our dreams. Let's see where our expanding discomfort zone will take us in these dynamic times. Let's keep disrupting this order and growing together. It is time. It is time. It is time.
Thank you so much, Sarah. Up next, we have a real treat from our friends from Elkhart, Canaan Baptist Church, Children's Choir, Judah Tribe. We have the pastor of Canaan Baptist Church, Reverend Stewart here. He'll share a little bit about the choir. The choir will sing two songs, and then I'll come up to offer announcements for what's going to happen for the rest of the day. God bless you, Goshen College, and God bless you, Goshen residents. It's such a joy and privilege to be here uh, with you today. Um, thank you for that wonderful presentation from that speaker. Uh, just to let you know, to help you understand how we hold hope and we breathe hope and we keep hope. Here's how we keep hope alive by the work that we do with our young people because in them we have hope. In them we have a future and this is where we spend our time building, teaching, loving, embracing, and building for the future. I would like to share with the Goshen community a little bit of the hope and a little bit of the joy uh, that we have in our young people. Uh, this is the Judas tribe from the Canaan Baptist Church. And we hope that you enjoy their presentation because they were certainly excited in the van ride down here to share with you. And so young people, I want you to breathe. And I want you to sing for our friends in Goshen, okay? Okay. Would you receive the...
Thank you, Judah Tribe. Hope you enjoy that. Aren't they cute? So cute. I want to remind us to take note of things that we're learning um, through our social media campaign, hashtag MLKLives, hashtag Poor People's Campaign, and hashtag It Is Time. Right after convocation, we will have some printed materials for the full schedule of the day to my left near the um, College Mennonite mailboxes. We'll have some information about Christian Peacemaker teams. We'll have some information about our Undocumented Youth Alliance here in Elkhart County. Um, we'll also have some literature about Elkhart people's history. At noon, uh, we will have two concurrent workshops. One will be led by Sarah, the other led by Amala. And they will all, all of our workshops will take place in either Koinonia or our church fellowship hall. So we will have signage. Um, we'll have the slideshow run right after this. After the first two concurrent workshops, we'll have two additional workshops. I want to make one note for Katerina Friesen's restorative practices for tending the movement. We do have a cap on 30 participants. So if you'd like to participate in the 130 to 245 restorative practices for tending the movement, my encouragement to you is to get there early. We will have to close the doors and turn people away after 30. We will end our day with a town hall in the fellowship hall. This will be a time uh, for mostly GC internal folks to talk about campus culture. We'll have some refreshments. Um, I hope that you come out for that. And lastly, I want to acknowledge my wonderful colleagues here at Goshen College who have helped me plan this wonderful weekend. Regina Shan Solsfus, Jose Rocha, Jessica Baldanzi, Corey Steinke, Kendra Yoder, Gwen Gustafson-Zook, who is our college Mennonite rep um, representative on the committee, and Heberto Perez. We were able to host all of these wonderful events through our partnership with um, College Mennonite Church, so I wanted to acknowledge them as well. I want to encourage you to acknowledge that it is time. It is time to tell your story. It's time for compassion. It's time for restoration. It's time to speak your truth. And it's also time to attend to yourself, trauma, and pain. I invite you to participate in all of the workshops uh, that will happen after convocation. All are welcome. And information will be here uh, when I step off the, uh, the platform and also on a table to my left if you want to pick up any of those. Have a great rest of your day and be well. <laughs>